everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers are recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, unless it's a rejoinder episode, which this is. In this episode, we see the triumphant return of Brendan Vedito, who is the author of the Wonderland award-winning collection of body horror stories, Nightmare and Ecstasy, from Clash Books. He also co-edited the Splatterpunk Award-nominated anthology, The New Flesh, a literary tribute to David Cronenberg from Weird Punk Books with Sam Richard. He lives in Ontario, surrounded by books and reptiles. In this episode, we talk about his new collection of short stories entitled Pornography for the End of the World. So if you're at work, headphones or wait for the car ride home. If you'd like to monetarily support this show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. Patrons are the reason why we have rejoinder episodes in the first place. You can also throw a one-time donation to me over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can buy my book on Amazon. It's called Tired. If you'd like to support the show in a non-monetary way, you can go over to any or all of the podcast playing websites that allow you to rate podcasts, and you can rate this podcast with an honest five-star rating. Or you can just find me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, and retweet and share this and other episodes with a friend. Now, without further preamble, here's my conversation with Brendan. I want to make clear for everybody that Pornography for the End of the World is not just a pretty title. This book is uh, what the title promises it will be. And I was very pleased about that because... So sometimes in our world, we, we think of very badass titles and we're like, ah, oh, yes, badass title. And then the title kind of does a lot of the work. Um, it's been quite a while since I've read Nightmares and Ecstasy, but from it feels like pornography for the end of the world, like really um, kind of doubles down on what you were doing. If, if you had to compare the two books in your mind... What do you think, uh, what would you say, like, makes this new one um, kind of different? Uh, yeah, this one is very much uh, an evolution of Nightmares and Ecstasy, but it's also, uh, I really like the idea of collections that are really cohesive. Like, the story's kind of all focused around a similar theme, and Nightmares, uh, it was very relationship-focused, and obviously there was elements of body horror. This time around, it was uh, more of a kind of a, post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic kind of vibe going on. And I guess that makes sense in hindsight because I wrote most of this stuff uh, during the pandemic. So, um, yeah, it was just very reflective of uh, my mind at that time, I guess. Yeah. I Something that I admire about the book is how, like, not mean it feels. Like, it's it's filthy um you know i say that in the best possible way um you know it's it's very gory it's very uh i don't know erotic kind of makes it sound like it was intended to be titillating um (laughs) yeah no that wasn't the intention and I, i don't i don't need to tell on on anybody here so but you know it's it's not one for the kids and um, <laughs> but at the same time, like amidst the very dour themes and apocalyptic ideas and kind of hopelessness that pervades, it doesn't it doesn't feel mean. 
Uh, and that's something that I really kind of like because I don't know. I also kind of feel like, like with the title thing, I kind of feel like we fall into the trap of like trying to make something edgy, trying to make something transgressive and then just kind of like picking a victim or, or a handful mm-hmm. of victims. And I mean, aside from the very real victims within the story, like it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't feel like you're pointing fingers necessarily. Yeah, and that means a lot because uh, that that is something I'm concerned about, like kind of just mean spirited uh, fiction. Because I think that's that's a trap that you can kind of fall into with body horror sometimes. Yeah, because it's just people are just disposable, and uh, I try to infuse it with as much like um, kind of emotion and purpose. Because I never sit down and uh, kind of. Uh, yeah, so I never, I never really sit down and, and uh, think like I'm just going to write the most grotesque thing imaginable. Um, it's mostly like I always need sort of any any kind of violence or uh, kind of sexual element needs a purpose, and I really like the idea of um, those elements having sort of a rhetorical purpose in the story or an aesthetic one. Uh, so yeah, it's just yeah, it means a lot that it's not. Uh, it doesn't come off as mean-spirited. Yeah, the um, the glitterati piece um, had, like, I mean, really one of the only sort of, like, I don't know, hints of, of like, sexual violence or anything. And it was, like, very clear how you felt about that. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's just kind of, like, what what do we as, as human animals do when all hope is lost? Because like even in that piece, um, like the apocalypse has come and the main characters on this like fancy island full of rich rich spoiled people, and um, everyone's just like, come on, we're all gonna die anyway because the end of the world's here. Yeah. There's these supernatural beings that are killing everybody, and it's like. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, that would be true without the monsters, without the impending apocalypse. Like, we are all going to die anyway. Like, that yeah. would really give you, you know, carte blanche to be, you know, horrible. Yeah, because it's just, uh, that whole thing was just, um, I find, like, Marky Sad very fascinating and not, like, in, a, in a, not in an ironic way. I just, I find there's some things in there that are really, because, uh, you know, I think it, a lot of people look at his work at face value, but there's like, obviously it's very politically minded and stuff. So I kind of wanted to, that was the fusion of that. And like the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing, it just kind of collided in my brain and uh, became this. Yeah. And it's just the whole, like almost like the meme where people like it's the end of the world, like let's have an orgy and the, the kind of the, the gross kind of um, uh, mentality around that. And I just wanted to explore that and I'll, of weird wacky way <laughs> yeah i think last time we talked there was a lot of talk about like comparing your work to clive barker and how his um hellraiser stuff is very much like limit experience type of stuff um and maybe it's just because i i just kind of got through talking to chris kelso and david leo rice about their david cronenberg book but like this one felt more cronenbergian in places there's a lot of that sort of like juxtaposition between body horror and like clinical settings or science experimentation stuff um that kind of 
weaves its way through the more um monstery bits that um I know that we had also talked last time too about like um you were like sick as a kid and mm-hmm. um you talked in that recent blog post when you kind of came back to the world about about that too so i guess that makes sense right that the the cronenbergian element would be there especially in this collection yeah absolutely because i think that you know i was drawn to his stuff in the first place because of that affinity i guess like body horror just appealed to me on a deeper level because of my um my experiences with illness and i think like there was a more uh Kind of a greater openness in pornography for the end of the world about embracing that and just being like, you know, the whole act, uh, maxim of writing what you know. And I just really kind of drove into that. And I think that's how it kind of, I, it, I, I also feel like nightmares, if it kind of very obviously like, I, you know, it wears its inspiration on its sleeve, but I feel like this one, it's, it's kind of becoming more of its own thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so because there's there's other influences too. There's the several pieces that have like stage directions in them, um, and like film descriptions and stuff like that too. Oh, I found that the Church of the Chronically Ill kind of on that in that same thing very very fascinating too because I kept thinking about like you know the American folk religion masquerading as Christianity yeah. right now and how there was uh, I don't know if they're still around. They must be. Um, but you don't hear about them very much anymore. There was a, a church somewhere in the South that like did stuff with rattlesnakes. Like they were oh yes, a, I, uh... a Christian church, and they did lots of like rattlesnake rituals um, until like one of the guys got bitten and died because yeah. they were <laughs> animals. Um, yeah, and so the idea that like the Church of the Chronically Ill, like it didn't even seem ridiculous to me anymore. <laughs> you know, like that is the most grounded out of all of them for sure, and. Uh... Yeah, I just kind of, I, that one really kind of spiraled out of the, the notion. I forget who told me this, you know, when I was, shortly after I was diagnosed, they're like, oh, like you're, you're, there's a, trying to make a correlation between my creativity and the fact that I was sick. And I thought that was kind of messed up. It's like the, you know, that, uh, or, you know, you need to be suffering to produce art, kind of a, an extension of that idea. So, uh, yeah. I just uh, I always thought that was kind of odd, and I did incorporate that into the story. The you know I think when he's being inducted into this church, priest or something says like yeah like you're a poet, and it's partly having to do with the fact that you're sick. And... Yeah, and and the like the little elements of questioning your faith um, in there too, because the the main character is like just diagnosed, um, where there's other people who. You know born sick and so there's like a dividing line in the church and that i feel like that's one of the shorter pieces too so it like oh yeah that was uh under 2000 i think it was. was it really yeah yeah so there's um this idea of like i don't know your brain gets to do an awful lot of work as the reader yeah i personally love stories like that so it was just uh i feel like that was what it it worked perfectly for that length anymore and it would have probably kind of exhausted that idea so yeah the more left to the imagination the better yeah that's certainly a skill that i don't feel like i have i I have a a really (laughs) hard time doing short stories back 
a couple of years ago and I was first starting to get into this scene or whatever you call it, I was writing a lot of flash fiction because I could pump out a story pretty quick. You know, 500 words doesn't take an awful lot of time and doesn't lend itself super easily to like doing a lot of plot. So you can kind of do like these tone poemy sort of um, like snapshot idea almost prose poem sort of thing to the point where I've, I've talked to people a lot recently who like don't quite know or or have talked about a debate about like whether or not flash fiction should be considered prose or poetry or, or its own thing or, or what it should be um but like the the sort of like drill like nature of of that makes it feel quite easy to me but then doing something in between a piece of flash fiction and a book uh, is like really weird to me because it it requires a lot of editing, right? Because you could do 90,000 words on that story. You know, you could do a whole history. Yeah. And for me, at least, it'd be really tempting to to just go after that idea. <laughs> yeah, and I think like, it's funny. I think we're, we're opposites because I've gotten a lot of... Uh, you know, people reading pornography from the end of the world. And there's a few stories and they're like, I'd love like more from this, you know, like uh, an extension of the work. But I, I think I've come to a place where I'm just very comfortable with short fiction. Uh, I've been writing uh, a novella for quite some time now. And it's just a lot. It's, it's le learning an entire new form of storytelling. Um, yeah. And it's kind of hard to wrap your head around because yeah, that one, it's even like, in between a novel and a short story mm -hmm. right so it's just yeah i find like it's it's been really challenging but it's also a great learning experience yeah i think so. i think the idea of trying to write short stories for me at least would would similarly be that sort of challenging learning experience what is these days your process for writing like um, well, for short stories, uh, and I, I, I can't really do this. I, I learned the hard way that this doesn't work for longer works of fiction, but I, I write my first drafts by hand. Uh, and then, because it's just easier, because I have a hard time with uh, a strict schedule, so I can like mm. tuck the pages into my pocket and write on the go, if, like, squeeze some time in at work or something. But uh, So I'll write the first draft by hand, uh, do a re edit as I go, then I'll type it out and do another edit as I'm typing it and then do another pass. And generally like that's the final form of the story. And I, yeah, I made the mistake of doing that with the novella. Mm. <laughs> so like having to type, you know, hundred, like over close to 200 pages of handwritten stuff and my handwriting is pretty atrocious. So mm. <laughs> it's just, it's not a very lucrative approach. Um, right. Yeah. It's, amazing to me how many people I talk to who still do any writing longhand. I, I recently tried to start like writing in a little notebook. I found one of those little tiny moleskin pocket-sized notebooks awesome, yeah. in, in my china cabinet from a long time ago and I was like I'm gonna do this when I'm out instead of like looking at my phone or something and I think that lasted about a day. Um, <laughs> Like back in high school, when I still had a, a phone that I had buttons to push when I wanted to text, it was it was a lot easier. Um, well, and especially in high school too, because you back in the 
in the teens, you could take your phone out at school and, and be in trouble right away. And that doesn't seem to be the case yeah, anymore. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was easy to get to class with five minutes to go and whip out a little notebook and just sort of sketch ideas down. Um, so, I mean, good for you for trying, but, yeah. <laughs> but I don't yeah, blame you yeah, for, so. for doing uh, or for realizing before it was too late that that's going <laughs> to be different. Um, yeah, actually, it was uh, one of the, I think it was the first draft of that novella. It was, it's for, I'm working on it for Clash Books. And uh, Christoph, one of the publishers, he'd asked, he's like, hey, can you send it to me by like, this date? And then that's when I realized, I'm like, oh, shit, this is not even typed yet. And mm -hmm. that was the moment where it just like, you know, this is not going to work. <laughs> um. I kind of want to backtrack here a little bit. You were you were talking about being drawn to body horror from like the the illness angle, um, and I think I think kind of by virtue of the people I've been hanging out with online, um, I've been seeing body horror primarily as like a like a queer thing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the the body horror of like gender dysphoria and and all the medical stuff that goes with that like it it seems to me especially after um the new cronenberg movie came out um that i feel like it resonated with a lot of trans people at least as far as i could tell not being one yeah, myself absolutely. that so like it's interesting to me to to see it um from your angle um but also like really feel how it kind of like intersects you know um so many of these stories where people get like turned into inhuman creatures um through the pursuit of of sexual pleasure um like doesn't feel all that different so it, it's kind of like this all roads lead to mush creatures <laughs> sort of thing yeah I, yeah i think that's the cool thing about just the fact that you know uh, horror is really opening up to different um like all these like various writers from different backgrounds are contributing and, and just showing like the flexibility of just body horror on its own. Um, yeah. Cause like, I think it's come even like just in the last like 30 years, body horror as a genre has significantly evolved just, um, in terms of like, yeah, the, the topic is it can explore and like how versatile it can be. And, uh, yeah. And I think like, just for me, it's very like, it's very personal, so I just take from what I know, and that's how I approach my fiction. But. Sure. Do you think, do you, I don't know, maybe you're, like, fingers closer to the pulse of, of like, indie horror lit than me. Do you, like, see any new currents coming up in horror, kind of in general, or, or body horror more specifically? Well, yeah, I think it, like that element um the trans kind of the transgender element in body horror is pretty huge and it's like there's some great work coming out of that um yeah that's one that's i think like that's really kind of taking off and uh yeah and it's just really becoming embraced by different like even uh, different cultural approaches to to body horror tend to be very different than what i think a lot of people are just used to in terms of like western depictions of it um so yeah, I just I feel like yeah, it's really kind of like spreading out and uh, growing, like, like yeah, like some sort of mass. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, 
good i'm glad that the 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 best way to explain body horror at all is is sort of body horror horror yeah (laughs) um you talked earlier about um these collections your two collections sort of like having a through line within themselves and certainly from the cover to the to the uh, text the idea of like worms um is is in many if not all of the stories um (laughs) which is cool like um i'm a big fan of worms i think worms are are pretty cool like as an idea right (laughs) like the idea that they just kind of like decompose things and are kind of mindless um but yeah like talk about that sort of element a little bit well it's funny you say that because like i don't know if i'm just out of touch with my own work to some Mm. degree because like i only realize in hindsight i'm like oh man like yeah i just i write too much about worms but i think it's just like for me it's like they hold sort of like and they encapsulate the themes of most of the stories, which is that kind of simultaneous repulsion and attraction. Um, so they're just a symbol, like a symbolic uh, reference for that interplay. Uh, yeah, because I don't know, like they're kind of, you know, they're kind of nasty, but there's something, yeah, like really fascinating about them and they're very alien. Um, so I just, yeah, I think they're, they're more of a symbol than, than anything else. I see. I I like that idea too. That like you kind of only realize certain things about your writing after, after you've written them. So like, what about this collection was definitely intentional? Um, and then what have you, like, what other things have you realized about it? Uh, the one thing that was more uh, kind of like considered than uh, was the kind of apocalyptic vibe Um, because most of the stories do have that kind of either if it's if it's not the immediate thing uh, there's like kind of a lot of rumblings in the background like characters checking their phones and you know there's like shit going on in the world and stuff so um, yeah that was one thing that I very consciously wanted to represent in these stories yeah, I don't think enough time has passed. Like it's still mm. like it's all been a blur. Because uh, yeah, I just I, I wasn't I was kind of blindsided by like it, it. It seems to be pretty well received, but yeah, I just because I fell off uh, and I'm pretty bad at social media. Like I, I thought like no one's gonna really give a shit about the book, <laughs> but yeah, it seems like it's some people are finding something to like in it, so that's really humbling. I'm really glad to hear that. Um... I think this is my first weird punk books uh, book that I've read. What has your relationship been uh, with that press so far? Oh, great. Yeah, Sam Richard, the owner of the press. Uh, he's one of my, my best friends. And uh, yeah, it was just really cool to actually be able to work with him. We, we uh, Our first experience like working relationship was on the Cronenberg anthology of the New Flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I just uh, reached out about putting out a collection, and I had a, this in the pipeline already. So, yeah, he's he's excellent in his press. So, yeah, there's a lot of really great work. A lot of actually, there's a lot of uh, a lot of body horror in his catalog. So it was a really good fit. Good. Um, I know that I've like followed both his personal and the 
the press Twitter account for a long time. But it's one of those things where there's so many indie press books and indie presses in general that sometimes it's hard to... Um, yeah, it's hard to keep track of everything, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, oh yeah, because Eric LaRocha and and Joe Cook yeah. are on this press too. Yeah, well, Joe's, uh, yeah, Joe's amazing. I kind of wanted to just like go down through all of these stories. Um, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> haven't done that yet so walking in ash is kind of like a ghost story right um yeah yeah um that was arguably i think the most personal uh, out of the collection um because i was yeah it was like a long-term uh long-term relationship was kind of declining uh around the time of that writing and uh yeah it was just really fascinating with the idea of like premonitions and how but I wanted to do it in a more kind of immediate fashion rather than they tend to be kind of sidelined and just more of a, uh, a conceptual thing, but to have it actually like stain and affect like his immediate reality. I just really wanted to explore that. The chimera session is, is kind of that, or kind of has that theme too of like two people trying desperately to, rekindle what they once had through this interesting hallucinatory or or viscerally real almost like a reincarnation experience that um i don't know that one almost felt the most hopeful to me of of the stories like i was kind of like (laughs) oh right yeah yeah. they're gonna keep going they're gonna figure this (laughs) out you know yeah, the uh, that one. Yeah, it was open ended, and I someone described it as like the weirdest swinging session imaginable, mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a fly in my microphone. Uh, Mother's Mark <laughs> was, I think, maybe like the most guru of the stories. Um, yeah, closer to sci-fi kind of. Yeah, girl. Uh, yeah, that was written specifically for uh, for Bin Futures. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, for that one, you get a a visual prompt, and then you're just free to do whatever you want with it. And oh, what was the prompt? Was just, uh, it was so the image in the story. It's just it's like this face, like it's two alien beings, like almost faceless things with just mouths, and uh, they're just embracing and uh, there. Was, I, I don't know. I like I interpreted it was like some sort of aggression on the part of like the male figure and I just kind of uh, ran with that and then Apate's children is the next one is that how you'd pronounce that yeah is that a, is that a deity that you created or is that is that a real no that's a <laughs> that a, I actually uh, I think it's I'm I'm pretty sure it's Greek uh she's sort of the, the patron of like uh represents those like you know who are spurned in infidelity and stuff mm. um i don't really spell that out in there but it's uh yeah so i just I, I really just it was mostly i think the one thing that i remember very clearly from that one was i i saw an image of a child's skull and all its teeth hadn't fallen yet so they're just kind of collected i just thought that was just so gnarly and i that that kind of informed the creatures in that story yeah, I was thinking about that too. Shortly before the kid was born, I was in a, a 
group video call and people are like oh yeah by the way don't look up what an infant skull looks like and <laughs> babies are born with both sets of teeth in their head already and uh oh yeah it's just so bizarre and gross <laughs> like i guess it makes sense right because teeth are bones basically and but at the same time like they're born without kneecaps like it seems like there's a real something off there's a real (laughs) inefficiency in in how the human body develops yeah and i just love how like you know i think it just ties into the whole notion of like the uncanny it's just like when there's too many teeth or too many eyes it's just instantly wrong you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh human clay was a was a fun one too that was sort of like um i don't kind of reminded me of like drive or the transporter right because it's the um main character is a a transporter of things and and messes up and then this whole sort of interesting emotional roller coaster happens that uh, <laughs> i think he probably ends up the l- probably least human of of the creatures yeah, he has probably arguably one of the worst fates of any single character in that collection um and then i jumped ahead to the chimera session um and we talked about Church of the Chronically Ill. Oh, the Living Column was an interesting one, too. Um, yeah. I want to hear your take on that before I, I muddy the waters myself. Um, so that one. Um, so it's basically a guy. It's, it's so funny because I'm I, <laughs> struggling to remember. The, like, there's a few stories that were written. Um, in a very condensed period in the middle of the pandemic and my mm. memory of actually writing them are so foggy. Um, I had to reread, uh, I think it was Mother's Mark on a podcast and I was like, mm. I don't remember writing this. But yeah, this it's, it, it's a guy on a business trip and he goes to this kind of surreal hotel uh, and he meets this woman at the bar and just things kind of get really bizarre and uh, like the reality starts breaking down. But that one was a... Uh, I think the, the the core image for that story was I, I forget where this hotel was, but it's it's just uh, it's sort of a hot spot for like ur- like urban explorers. Mm-hmm. It's in a, on a mountaintop in the middle of a jungle, and because of the the humidity, uh, there's sort of condensation running down the walls. There these white concrete walls, and it almost looks like blood just running from the balconies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just kind of went from there. And there, there's a bit of, uh, in the hills of the cities by Clive Barker, there's a bit of kind of, a, that's a, a definite inspiration for that story. Keeping with my film analogies, it's kind. it kind of gave me Lost in Translation vibes. Like Lost in <laughs> Translation, but make it very terrible. <laughs> that's, I love that. Yeah. Um, Picture Bill Murray in the... <laughs> just yeah just being sort of venus fly trapped into some sort of weird orgiastic concrete structure yeah um the glitterati piece i can't i don't know how to pronounce the second word in that in that title yeah guignol like uh that's taken from like grand guignol like uh, the theater mm. yeah i'm not familiar with the term i suppose is that french well, yeah, then it's basic yeah, so it was this movement uh, in France. Um, I guess it's like it, often seen as like the predecessor of gore films because you would go in these kind of 
shabby, like out of the way theaters and people would stage performances like these kind of really just grotesque, like there'd be fake blood flying into the audience. And like, you know, it was just really lurid plots of like, you know, women getting murdered, people getting decapitated or, uh, so yeah, this, it was just, it was short lived and then it died off because I guess when the society was kind of tightening up and it was no longer deemed, uh, appropriate i guess i see okay there's some connection to based on my cursory googling right now that there's like a, a french puppet show sort of thing yeah i think that's one of the uh yeah because like the puppet i think the whole idea of like you know the puppets like just kind of beating each other over the head mm-hmm. i think there there is some sort of like ancestry there but huh bizarre yeah <laughs> i'm so glad that i get to keep learning about weird <laughs> subgenres of, of genres i'm very into um but that's one of the, awesome. one of the ones that has the sort of stage directions at, at least is like a sort of i don't know like a chapter marker sort of thing yeah and that was deliberately just to kind of mimic the structure of a play because mm-hmm. uh, yeah a lot most uh, as far as i know a lot like the majority of these grand guignol performances like the plays themselves were are just lost media technically Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm assuming like, obviously there was the stage direction and stuff at some point. Right. And then, uh, the last one, Nostalgia Night at the Snuff Palace is, I think, is that the longest one? Oh yeah. Uh, that one's close close. to uh, 10k, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know. I, I can't I can't think of a good a good um a film analogy for that one. It kind of gave me Jubilee vibes, I guess. <laughs> in in like I don't know how it made me feel not necessarily so much plot structure. Yeah, that that one definitely has uh well the the, the piece of media did sort of plant the seed. Um so a friend of mine grew up in in London. Uh and he, he told me, he visited, and he's like, have you ever seen the movie Threads? And he's like, it's this TV movie that played, uh, I think it was in the late 80s. Um, and I said, no. And he's like, it's the most like fucked up thing imaginable. And I was like, I, I was kind of dubious because it's a TV movie, right? Um, then I actually sat down and watched it. And this was uh, like worst timing to watch this movie. I think it was uh, the war in Ukraine had just broken out. And I was like, just doom scrolling all the time and really it's a bad place. Right. This, it, the film just kind of revolves around, it's set during uh, the latter days of the Cold War and steel mill town in England, and they get nuked by uh, the Soviets. And it's just sort of like the immediate uh, kind of aftermath of this nuclear detonation. And then it goes 20 years into the future and just basically shows how this small town has like regressed. Uh, into the middle ages and it's just it's horrific i just feel like this movie should be shown to like any any politician with it kind of e- like even remotely close to these nuclear codes as a, as a form of deterrence or something it's just like horrific and um yeah so i just wanted to that, that was sort of the catalyst for i wanted to write some sort of like nuclear holocaust story but i, I did it in a kind of infused it like a surreal angle with you know added these these uh these beings and i, I kind of like yeah for the way my ideas work uh 
I, I generally start out with two seemingly disparate ideas that kind of come together and then they create a story. So that's why I guess like when you're, when I explain these stories, it always it's difficult to do that because there's so many like different things going on. Uh, and that's by, by design, but I just like things that are like, uh, so it's like short stories that have like, like real meat and, and like just layers. And...